Pre-employment background checks. Will Ohio stop the climate bill? And bowling for slot machines. These topics are more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Daryl Rowland, Public Affairs Editor for the Columbus Dispatch. Julie Carr-Smythe, State House Correspondent for the Associated Press. Catherine Terser, Legislative Director for Ohio Citizen Action. And Mark Weaver, Republican Political Strategist. This week's shooting on the Ohio State campus brought workplace safety and the value of background checks into daily conversation. Police say OSU custodian Nathaniel Brown shot and killed his boss, wounded another supervisor, and then shot and killed himself. Brown was being fired for poor performance, and he had a criminal record. He served five years in prison for receiving stolen property, but a background check commissioned by OSU failed to catch that. Catherine Terser, your former social worker, you work in the watchdog business looking into records. Should employers regularly look at their candidates as far as background checks go? You know, I, I would make this joke, which is, you know, past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior until it isn't. Now, I do think it makes good sense for all of us to do background checks. Um, and it ha does have to do with, you, it, you, it's good to have as much information as you possibly can, um, as much as you can possibly have. Um, on the other hand, that's just one step, and we like to think that's enough, um, but there are all sorts of other things that you need to do in workplace situations to create a safe environment beyond background checks. Well, the larger question here is, assuming they had found out that he had been in prison for a, a non-violent mm -hmm. offense, receiving stolen property. It was many 20 years ago. Yeah, too. a long time ago. Many employers would have hired this person anyway. Uh, because it's not a predictor necessarily of violent behavior. So the question is not so much should we do background checks, it's what do we do with the information when we have it and how do we predict violence in our society. Some companies are moving towards assessments where they bring in outside experts mm -hmm. who will ask questions of people, even for the lowest level of people in the company, to be able to determine whether or not there's somebody who could go off like a time bomb. It still seems like you need the, the basic truth, though, on those background checks. I mean, there's this weird stuff about the checks and the, and the truth being one digit off in terms of the date of birth. The social security number was one digit off. Um, we, the dispatch, called one of his references. He had never been called, so there's still a lot of questions going unanswered about, um, you know, how, how thorough was the check. He, he also checked that he had never been convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. um, lying will get you mm -hmm. not hired in almost every case. Well, and I think there can be at times this idea that the fact that it's required, that the employer thinks of that as a comfort, that, okay, well, maybe we're not going to call every reference. Maybe we're not going to um, look deeply into this background check, but we're going to know that that person lived in fear that they had to report the proper information, the way we all have to report proper information on things, and it becomes sort of a, a, a predictor of good behavior. I think with the reference checks, you know, they're almost kind of the rubber stamps or the validation because you're not going to put up somebody on your application who's going to give you a poor reference, at least knowingly. Well, a lot of companies now have a policy where they won't give any information on a reference exactly. check other than to say, I can confirm Mr. Smith worked here between this year and that year. 
they're worried about being sued by these folks if they give a bad recommendation and then the person doesn't get the job. Well, and on the other, uh, the other issue with background checks now is, I mean, we are mandating them all over the nation, of course, and there's a lot of expense going into this by the government. Um, and a story I wrote, I think, last year talked about how there really is so much expense and really very little uh, value in terms of what is being caught and what is actually making a difference. And I think that gets back to Mark's point, which was we do need to think beyond that background check, that that's, you know, that's just a piece, it's a piece of the puzzle maybe, but we need to think about, you know, conflict resolution, ways to talk people through the whole, you know, you know, we need to let you go process, what are the things, you know, or safety features that you can build in, all of those kinds of things just need to be part of our workplace conversation and our workplace practices. You know, human resources officers and managers take a lot of heat for the way they dismiss people. A lot of times it's, even if the person is being let go for, mm -hmm. you know, economic reasons, a, a financial layoff, there's a security person that goes to the desk, makes them empty out their desk, and walks them out of the office. Humiliating experience. But in this case, it looks like he knew before, the, before this happened that he was getting fired. And had they just walked him out, perhaps this could have been avoided. Right. You know, it's hard for us to really fully appreciate this, but there are some things we will never prevent. Mm -hmm and somebody who has a grudge and who wants to use a gun or a knife or a bomb or a rock or whatever it is to take that grudge out, we'll always have that. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try to prevent, doesn't mean we shouldn't try to learn from the situation, but sadly, uh, evil sometimes is gonna, is gonna win out. We expect changes probably at, at Ohio State. I'm, I'm sure a lot of companies will look at this and and say, what can we do better? What, how can we spot this if we can spot it? Well, and it's it's a huge issue in the economy now with with the number of people who are losing jobs. Um, and obviously, we had this you know Academy Award winning up in the air movie that was all about this issue and sort of touched on how inhumane this can be for people. And and I think it is really telling right now. Well, and our jobs are so connected to who we are. Mm -hmm. I, you know, really, when you think about that, a job being taken away, you're talking about really I mean, even the most secure person can feel really unhappy and angry. And, and um, so th you're absolutely right, Mark. I was thinking about the notion that we need to do what we can to help people um, and to create a cir circumstance. Um, but you're talking about stripping away people's dignity, not necessarily intentionally at all, um, but, but that's what we're talking about. We live in rough times because of that. Okay. Topic two, Sherrod Brown was part of a select group of senators who met with President Obama at the White House this week. They are select because they remain doubtful about his push for carbon emission reducing legislation. Here's why Ohio's Democratic senator is doubtful. You take a look at this chart, that big blue piece of pie, that represents 86% of Ohio's electricity that is generated by coal. No other energy source is even in the ballpark. Nuclear power comes in second, making up 10%. Julie Carswice, so any cap on emissions, any change to this is gonna hurt anyone who buys electricity here, not to mention the folks who are producing things and creating emissions. Right, and this is a this is a line that Ohio politicians have to walk all the time, especially on the Democratic side where they're trying to uh, both look environmentally friendly and be sensitive to the incredible amount of, uh, the incredible influence of coal in our economy. This includes the jobs, like you say, in the power industry, the coal mining industry. We have a governor now who's from coal country who has to walk this line, and for um, Sherrod Brown, who comes from an industrial part of the state, it's also a problem. 
we, we talked to Sherrod right after he came out of that White House mm -hmm. meeting, and actually he was as hopeful as, as we've heard him in, in months on this. Now, it's not going to be the House version, you know, cap and trade and all that, as passed by the House, it is dead, but there were R's and D's in that room, and who would have thunk in Washington, actually agreeing on some things, maybe making some progress, which I would have thought, especially this year with health care and everything else on the table, um, there would be long odds against anything happening, but he's pretty optimistic, and, you know, it's, maybe it's idealistic, but he wants to go to this green economy, green energy, and you know, says that's a way to for Ohio to at least ease this thing. Well, he's two years away from an election. He'll change his tune when he gets closer to election. We, we remember we need to take President Obama at his word when he was running for office. He said that my energy programs, uh, cap and tax, and these emissions will necessarily raise electric prices for consumers. It just has to. And when that happens, consumers will be unhappy, and Sherrod Brown will hear about it. Has Ohio been? Too slow. It's hard. To, you saw by that chart. I mean, it's huge. The, our reliance on coal, and it's hard to break old habits. But so has Ohio been too lax, too reluctant to move to away from coal, and now is caught? You know, I think about of course Sherrod Brown. Hello, Rock. Hello, Hard Place. I mean, all all of the politicians are in this very difficult position. But I go back to you know that the coal companies are actually permitted to be, receive grants in the Ohio Constitution, where all other forms of energy, alternative energies, actually d have to receive loans. And I think we we are hardwired when it comes to coal, and we need to really rethink that. Um, but that's a very difficult process. You know, we're the Saudi Arabia of coal. And if you look at uh, the fact that the, um, I'm sorry, Daryl, you go ahead. You start. No, 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 <laughs> <laughs> you me up. I was just going to say that, uh, yeah, in, in terms of these grants and loans, okay. that we're giving all kinds of incentives. And when we went to put in our, our big 20, or is it 25% alternative energy uh, requirement yeah, yeah. now, mm -hmm. that, that coal, clean coal, was a big part of that. We didn't really get away from that and put in a tough, you know, solar, wind, water kind of standard. As long standard. as people want cheaper electric rates, which they do, particularly in the tough times, uh, they're going to look towards power sources that are the cheapest. Coal is the cheapest right now. Technology is changing. Eventually, alternative energy sources will be economical. They're not now, but the technology is changing. And there are national studies out there that give Ohio some credit, for as much as you can measure states at state on this, for being friendly to this emerging green economy as far as, you know, attracting money and, and federal grants and things of that nature and just having that environment ready for whenever that tipping point comes where this becomes viable. The Toledo Blade had a series that ran this week showing they, their investigation found, according to them, that Ohio was behind other states um, in as far as attracting solar companies. That's big in Toledo because of this, the old glass manufacturers up there. But it also showed this tremendous competition out there. All these states are going after this green economy and these green jobs. There are only so many of them. Right. How, do we, how do we get them here? And Sherrod Brown and Ted Strickland campaigned on the idea that we were going to be the Silicon Valley of alternative energy. Are we going to be? It's hard to say. We, do, we are well positioned in a number of areas, and solar is one of them to bring this stuff in. But um, you have to make room. And, and that's the political you know, policy challenge, I think. It seems that, speaking of Silicon Valley, that California has an advantage in that they actually have sun. More <laughs> sun than we have. <laughs> so, th so the demand is greater there for solar fields and There's farms. There's two aspects of this. I mean, one is, sure, putting all this stuff on our homes and trying to make that work, whether it's wind or solar or, what, or smart grids, what have you. The other is making the components. And that's where, again, Ohio is still that heavy manufacturing. Yeah. Somebody's got to make these wind turbines. Now, the trick is, let's make them in the U.S. and not in China, which is what is happening a lot now. 
Okay, let's get to our next topic. The other big controversial bill before Congress would overhaul the health care industry. President Obama will be in Strongsville next week, campaigning for Congress to pass the plan. Democrats are moving forward with their efforts to sidestep Senate rules and pass key parts with reconciliation, also known as a simple majority. Darrell Rowland, why is the president coming to Ohio? Are there any lawmakers in the state still in play? Um, just about every Democrat, to one extent or another, is, is still in play. Uh, this will be his third, uh, dare I say it, campaign stop uh, for health care. The first two were also in political swing states, uh, Pennsylvania and Missouri. Uh, he's coming to suburban Cleveland, ironically, in a, the exact same place where John McCain and Sarah Palin a, appeared about a year and a half ago. But yeah, a lot of Democrats, there, there's a lot of hand-holding going on right now in Washington because there's a lot of this distrust between R's and D's, but you know where almost a bigger distrust is? And th this is something my Washington Bureau had to educate me on. It's between the House and the Senate. This is a two-step process, and step number one involves the House has to swallow the Senate version unchanged. People like Zach Space, District East of Columbus, have already put out some very strongly worded news releases saying this is an awful thing. Now he's going to have to vote for it if this is going to pass because the margin is so so thin for uh, Speaker Pelosi and uh, Democratic leaders. Think about what this says about this policy the president's putting forward. He's having to go to his own party, twist their arms, offer the Cornhusker kickback, the Louisiana purchase. He appointed someone to an appeals court judge whose brother whose vote he needed. This is just his party. How good is this legislation that the president has to twist arms in his own party? American people aren't ready for this. They're just disorganized. Or, <laughs> or it's a really bad idea. <laughs> Bigger tent. Americans <laughs> don't want it, and he wants to move it through before the congressional midterms. Well, That's the, what I think is The Cornhusker kickbacks and all that is going to come out in reconciliation, or at least that that's is the, the promise point. being yeah. made. And that's, that's where the House members are all taking a risk that they're going to have to vote for that bill with all that nasty stuff in it. And then reconciliation will take it all out except for abortion. And that's a whole separate issue that, you know, Steve Driehaus, um, you know, other, you know, kind of pro-life Democratic middle-of-the-road members of Congress are really going to have to wrestle with before they vote for. Locally, Mary Jo Kilroy voted for the House package. She supports what's going on here. She trusts the Senate to make the changes, I take well, it. Officially, she is undecided, but I, I think I would uh, stun people if she didn't go along with it. Although the Obama folks did put something out to their, uh, I guess, campaign supporters or, you know, organizing for America that, you know, please talk to Mary Jo, make sure she's going to vote the right way kind of thing. So, you know, they're, they're definitely putting the, the pressure on. Sherrod Brown, the other Democrat that most of our viewers mm -hmm. vote for, he's solid. Is he also undecided? No, he's solidly for it. Solidly for it. Okay. Um, yeah, and you know, and that's the other Democratic dilemma. They they all look back to 1994, where you know the Clinton health care bill went nowhere, and the trap door opened under them in the midterms. Now they're looking at the worst of both worlds. Now they may pass health care, and the trap door may still open, as Mark Mark says. But we'll see. Pat T. Berry is firmly against it, as mm -hmm. is George Voinovich. Every Republican, yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's get to our next topic in the campaign 2010 roundup. Paula Brooks gets some help from National Democrats in her challenge to Pat Tiberi. Jennifer Bruner is taking criticism from Republican Steve Christopher, who wants to run against Mike DeWine in the GOP Attorney General primary. But Bruner's office disqualified Christopher, saying he fell about 350 signatures short of the amount he needed. Christopher claims Bruner's office lost some 2,000 signatures and accuses her of conflict of interest. Mark Weaver, 
Now, you're working for Mark DeWine, so my goal here is to get you to defend Jennifer Bruner. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, try again. Now, you won't hear me defending Jennifer Bruner. Um, she Certainly, there's a, not inco a lot of incompetence and, and partisanship in that office, and so it's credible to think that something crazy happened here. The harder part is for Mr. Christopher, which is he now has to get the Ohio Supreme Court to order him back on the ballot. And think about how difficult that is. Not only does he have to prove he filed those signatures, which are nowhere to be found, then he has to prove that they're valid. Which is, and he has to do it in the next week or so because absentee ballots are being printed in the next week to 10 days. It's a very tall order. I don't think he will be able to get the Supreme Court to go along with him. But Jennifer Bruner now has a giant PR problem, which is it looks like her staff may have been, at the very least, not as careful as they could have been. If they didn't get the petitions, which she's, she disputes, they basically the office is saying, we never got these signatures. Well, we're, we're, we're down to the point now, and again, this, this is breaking even as we're, we're taping yes. this, Mike. Uh, uh, Mr. Christopher has gone to the Supreme Court. They're talking about subpoenaing if there's any security uh, tapes or recordings of them filing the petition forms. They have copies of several hundred they claim they filed. Now, how do you prove they did? How do you prove they didn't? It's going to be up to him to prove they did. Otherwise, uh, you know, I think Jennifer Bruner... You know, there's never been a problem, even even allegations of this nature, of, of her or any Secretary of State in my memory. So this is a new one on me. Right, and this goes to, you know, since uh, Ken Blackwell, this office has just been so politically charged, particularly then all of a sudden that person is running for office and also running that office. Now, there are checks and balances in place, as they always remind us, that, you know, we have these bipartisan county election boards, and we, you know, a lot of that is, uh, Jennifer has also punted some of, uh, all of the, I believe, primary duties to a deputy, yes. which Blackwell did as well, who was a Republican, you know, but it's always going to come up and... Well, and it brings us to the question of whether we need a state board of elections and whether we need to think of things differently, because at this point, you know, there's this distrust of the person who's actually counting the votes. There's this worry that this person is acting out of partisan motivations, and whether it's Ken Blackwell or it's Jennifer Bruner, I've I've thought it was kind of uh, amusing. You know, when Senator John Houston talks about running, he talks about running to put himself out of uh, basically out of business because he's interested in changing um, the nature of that. And and certainly, it's something that you know, if you go back to Reform Ohio now, certainly didn't pass. Uh, uh, it failed. <laughs> Overwhelmingly. Um, but it's worth having that conversation again. Do we actually need systemic reform? Do we need a real change at this point? One other thing I think should be said. I, I don't see what the political benefit to Jennifer Bruner is to, to knock Steve Christopher off the ballot. I would think as a Democrat she would want him on and blooding of, you know, Mark's client, uh, former Senator DeWine in the primary. At least that's a conventional way of but thinking. But you're talking about logic. <laughs> no, no, you understand what I'm saying? We're, when we're talking about this perception of unfairness, you know, when you're the person that's being impacted, it's easy to say, oh, it's partisan stuff. And it, I do think if you had a state board of elections, then you're, you're, you truly are able to say, okay, they're doing two by two. There is this independence there as well. If, if anyone has a beef, it's Tracy Johnson, who's right. the Democrat who was looking to challenge mm -hmm. Jennifer Bruner in the primary. She was also disqualified. <laughs> She's complaining, but she hasn't, she hasn't charged, you know, misconduct or... or right. Hers is like a that. straight case of she submitted a certain number of signatures and she's she's challenging how many of those were not qualified. Yeah. But again, the secretary's office doesn't even do that. That's a county boards of elections do that whole process. Real quick on Paula Brooks, Pat T. Berry, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has labeled her district as one of 13 that can shift, they say, from red to blue. The 12th district, her race with Pat T. Berry. 
Mark Weaver, does this might it have the opposite effect of generating more fundraising for Pat T. Berry than it would for Paula Brooks, or does it matter? I think the press release was whistling past the graveyard. Charlie Cook, who's probably the top handicapper for congressional races in Washington, rates the T. Berry seat as likely Republican. And uh, we're, we're seeing a Republican sweep year. This will not be the year for Paula Brooks to go to Congress. In the past, that district has always been solidly Republican, though. Oh, I think that's right, but there's patterns of people moving in and out of the district with normal demographic patterns that change at every few years. This just is not the time for her. It's going to be hard enough for Mary Jo Kilroy to hold on to her seat, much less Paula Brooks win a seat. Might the Democrats be hedging their bets and trying to get some money towards Paula Brooks' seat for fear that uh, Mary Jo Kilroy could lose in I a tough race? I think the Democrats have a lot of money, and I think that they're, you know, they're reaching in a sense. They're they're going to try for you know, some, some seats that they haven't tried for in the past. Well, and I always, you know, find it, you know, yeah, yes, yeah, at this point, um, you know, Patty Berry has been in for 10 years, right? Um, so it's been in for a while, um, and I think sometimes we just let incumbents get really complacent. And it would be fun to have a really good race. Now, I am hopeful that everybody is challenged, but that's never going to happen across the board. Um, it's good that, that you know that um, the party identifies this specific race or 13 specific races and says, "Okay, we're going to take it on, even if it's an uphill battle." Um, I think you know incumbents do better if they're challenged. They um, come up with better policies. They think better. I think you know it's also more fun during election night, and mm -hmm. and you know and it makes it for a more fun year. I mean, it just makes it more interesting if there's an actual debate discussion and an actual fight. Gives us something to talk about. <laughs> Our last topic, maybe you haven't noticed, but we have not talked about casinos that much lately. It's been kind of quiet now that Penn National has agreed to move its casino from the Arena District to the west side. But this week, Penn National announced it plans to buy Beulah Park, the iconic but struggling horse racetrack in Grove City. One reason that's suddenly attractive is that horse tracks soon could have slot machines and this week, Bowling Alley said if jockeys can wear funny shirts and have slot machines, bowlers in funny shirts should have slot machines as well. <laughs> Julie Carsmythe, if the horse tracks get it, do the bowling alleys stand a chance of getting them? Or is this just... Well, you know, at this point, it's, you know, it's sort of a legislative debate, and everybody is, is uh, ponying up, I guess, trying to get <laughs> their piece of this because these are struggling businesses. Uh, but... I, I think it might be a stretch to take it beyond the tracks because that lobbying, uh, the group that's lobbying for that is, is very well organized and, and uh, dedicated. Why does Penn National want Beulah Park? They, they've got their casino either in the Arena District or even bigger casino on the, on the west side. Controlling the competition. I mean at some point you, if you can go here or there to gamble, uh, some folks would like to have control of both sides. I think the bowling centers might have a chance. Uh, most of them are mom and pop, small businesses, and the legislature likes to favor small business. Nobody doesn't like their local bowling center. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a carve out for the bowling centers. Yeah, yeah. I think we're in the territory where a lot of gambling opponents said we'd be. I mean, the, the camel's nose is in the tent, and the rest of him's coming in now. First casinos, now you know slots. At tracks and hey, why should we stop now? Keno why say no? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Keno, Powerball now as well yeah. as Mega Millions. Catherine can't wait. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, we have a family member way, way back when. So turn of the century, not this last one, but the one before, who lost all his money in gambling. And my family is still scarred. It's still one of those things. You know how, like, you talk about a great grandpa that was alcoholic. We still talk about okay. You, you know, uh, we are a family does not spend money on lottery. And and I think there is this. 
I, it hurts to think about the damage that happens to families with gambling addiction. It hurts to think about how consumers are bamboozled. Um, and, you know, I don't want to... Yeah, it's it's scary to me. And I suspect it's scary to a lot of people. I, I don't actually have exactly a moral position against it, but I worry a lot about how it will affect families. Real quick, Daryl, this quick campaign to change the location has been very quiet. Do we expect it to pick up in the next couple of weeks, month? Well, I think we will. It's the great mystery to this is how will this play outside of Columbus? I mean, locally, um, you know, I think it seems like the general sentiment is is for it. Uh, I don't know, Cleveland, Toledo, rural areas of southeast Ohio. How about play there? I, I'm not sure. Well, on the ballot, wording matters because yeah. a quick glance at it looks like you're voting for a casino. And so uh, it, we've never seen a ballot issue quite like this. It will be in, Some advertising will have to be yeah. done to clarify it for people. Okay, let's get to our off-the-record comments from our panel. Some final thoughts, predictions for the weeks ahead. Daryl, you're up first. Mike, I've mentioned uh, Blake Haxton a couple times on the show before the young Upper Arlington uh, rower who lost both of his legs to the flesh-eating bacteria. Uh, this coming uh, week, it will be one year since all that stuff happened, and uh, a lot of people were praying for a miracle that, you know, God said yes to, a lot of people say. Uh, Blake has been at Ohio State for two quarters now. He's thriving. He's motoring around his motorized uh, wheelchair, and uh, just an amazing story that will continue. All right. Julie. Uh, we saw an interesting thing this week, uh, formation of an Ohio Tea Party PAC and its first endorsement, and I think that we're going to see some more from the Ohio Tea Party. Seth Morgan got the endorsement. Right. Okay. Catherine. Um, as you know, um, the head of the Franklin County um, Democrats and the head of the Board of Election, same person. Bill Anthony. And my prediction is that he will step aside because um, how can you be the head of a party and actually fairly administer elections? Pfft. Mark? Uh, issue one on the ballot. This primary is the third frontier. I think you will see it's the people's campaign. You will not see politicians pushing it. You will see union and small business and managers and university folks uh, banding together to push this very pro-job friendly a ballot issue. Ohio State, I think, this past week pushed something in support of it. Some press release I saw. So mm -hmm. I think Ohio State would probably be very big with that. Okay. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. You can check out our website. There you can get a preview of the topics we're going to discuss, streaming video of all of these programs, if you don't want to stay up till midnight to watch us. Also, a link to our Facebook page and a link to our blog. All of that at our website, WOSU.org. For our crew, for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. Thank you.